Good morning. I'm Pastor Eric Samborski. Thanks for tuning in to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the devil, and the world. We're on every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance, and that is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. Make sure to like and follow us because we're going to have a lot more in-depth content on there in the future. And if you need something, please just email us at gods.resistance at gmail.com, or you can give us a call at 570-362-7782. It seems to be that people are so caught up in wanting to be a part of a cause right now. With this politically charged atmosphere, there's a cause to stand for here, here, and here. But I'm asking you to be a part of the most important cause, which is God's cause. And so instead of being in a, in a part of resistance for everything else round about us, I'm asking you to be a part of God's resistance. Last week, I was talking about the first part, resisting sin. And that is really a personal responsibility. You and I have to resist sin. Today, we're going to be talking about what it means to resist self, that part that's in us that saps all of our highest good. It saps like that highest sense of oughtness that we have. We've got these great ideas and we feel like we just can't actually do it. We're going to be talking about resisting self today. So let's listen in on today's briefing. Last week, I alluded to two sin problems. There's the acts of sin, the things we do or the things that we don't do that we should. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. So there's the acts of sin, but then there's also the disposition of sin, the fountain from where everything springs forth. These are where these actions came from because of this disposition of sin within. Modern psychology teaches that all people are mostly good. And so then the question is, well, then what is people's problems? Because it doesn't look like things are mostly good around us. So what's the problem? Well, their answer is that people are just uneducated. Basically, they just don't know. They don't know how to handle anger. They don't know how to handle uh, proper sexual desire. They don't know how to hander, handle proper financial discipline. You know, they and because of that, they they play the lottery and they gamble and they lose all their money or they don't know how to handle their emotions. So they try and drown these emotions with alcoholism. And so their answer is just come up with programs to teach them and then all this will be fixed. So they've got anger management, sex education or sex ed. If they just had a better paying job, then maybe they would get up and out of this hole that they're in. You know, I knew a millionaire. I used to work at a gas station years ago when I was 18. I'm 35 now. but I worked at this gas station. There was a millionaire that would drive in and he would buy whole books of $10 scratch tickets at a time. And I don't remember how many scratch tickets were in there, but it's hundreds of dollars. And he didn't do it just at the gas station I worked at. He did it to all the gas stations that were in the town there. So it's not that, you know, if they get a better paying job, things are going to get fixed. There's something else going on. And, or somebody says, you know, well, these people who are alcoholics, they can't help it. It's just a disease. And I realized that there is a physical component to addiction, but there's also a reason behind some of this that's more in-depth than just people are not educated, so they just don't know, so this is why they do it. That's modern psychology. That's what we're taught, but God says differently. God says, 
The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's what God sees in us. What is the problem? The Bible speaks about this as that carnal self, that disposition that every one of us is born with. And you may say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, part of this resisting self is that we need to realize our need. At present, there's a resurgence of teaching that says there is no such thing as this indwelling sin, as this corruption within the heart. But I would ask you a question. Who teaches a toddler how to lie? Who teaches the toddler how to hide the wrong that they've done or to throw a temper tantrum? Nobody teaches them how to do that. We're born with a corrupt gravitation towards evil and towards sin, and it takes a Herculean effort for anyone to try to walk against this gravitation apart from the Spirit of God. So the question is, is there such a thing as inherited depravity? Is there such a thing as this bent towards evil that we have that I didn't really have any choice over and it's just kind of in me? Is there such thing as a carnal Christian? Well, let's look to the apostles. It was said in Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent take it by force. In other words, in this overlap of dispensations of Old and New Testament, there was kind of this gray area transition. And it seems to be that what Jesus is saying is though he hasn't yet been on the cross and died, he recognized that from the days of John the Baptist preaching until the present moment when Jesus was talking to whomever he was speaking with at that moment, that the kingdom of heaven suffered violence and the violent take it by force. In other words, people were so incredibly hungry for this salvation, that they were taking it with both hands like somebody would violently seize a possession. So Jesus was then saying that people were entering the kingdom of heaven since the preaching of John the Baptist, even up to the present day, before Jesus even was on the cross. There are people that were saved while he was walking there on earth. John Calvin, who denied the possibility of having the heart cleansed from indwelling sin in this life, did make this observation in Luke 10.20. Luke 10.20, Jesus told his disciples, notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, don't rejoice, uh, they were coming back and rejoicing because devils were subject to him. He said, in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. This is what John Calvin commented on that verse. Jesus might indeed have commanded them to rejoice, that they had been regenerated or saved by the Spirit of God and become new creatures in Christ, that they had been enlightened in the hope of salvation and had received the earnest of the inheritance. And that earnest of the inheritance, that or that inheritance, is heaven. So in other words, John Calvin is saying, Jesus might as well have told them that they were saved people, radically changed people, ready for heaven. There were saved people at the time of Jesus walking on earth, and more specifically, the apostles. We look later after the day of Pentecost with the Corinthians. Paul had to write to them in the third chapter, the first three verses, he says, and I, brethren, so he calls them brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Notice he just said, he called them brothers and he called them babes in Christ, but he calls them carnal at the same time. He said, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. 
for ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So here we find there's carnal Christians, people that were really saved, but something still wasn't right inside their hearts. Then look to the book of Hebrews. Here is a bunch of people that were already saved, and they were tempted to turn their back on this newfound salvation they had in Christ because the persecution they were getting from the Judaizers. The Judaizers were people that were still saying that they needed to be circumcised, they needed to obey all the uh, feasts and all the different other intricacies of the law that didn't have anything towards salvation. Jesus fulfilled all that. So these Hebrews, because they were under such intense persecution, were tempted to go back. When you look in the sixth chapter of Hebrews, after a long argument the writer of Hebrews makes, the writer tells the Hebrews, go on to perfection, as if to say that there was something imperfect in them, and they needed to enter that rest of God because there was an evil heart of unbelief. They needed to go forward than just that entering in in repentance and being saved. And there's, we don't minimize that. There's a radical change. But he was saying there's still something wrong inside of your heart. A carnal Christian, that carnal disposition or that carnal bent still remained. There has always been the teaching that we always live a captive to indwelling sin in, and, and we sin in thought, word, and deed every day. So there's the denying of this indwelling sin, and then there's the other opposite end of the spectrum where we take it too far. And so with that teaching that we sin in thought, word, and deed every day, we're told there's no victory over sin. The idea is, I got my ticket punched, and so I'm good. Uh, Jesus puts on his rose-colored glasses, and he plays tricks with himself, and basically says that we're counted as righteous, even though we still live like a bunch of sinners. The Bible makes no excuse for sin. It doesn't pet sin. There is a real deliverance for sin. So remember before I said, what do we do? How do we realize this sin? How do I realize this indwelling sin, this self that I'm saying we need to resist? Well, I would say to anybody, try to believe and obey God in earnest, and you'll find out that that, that corruption in the heart does exist. Somebody who's a sinner that's never been saved, that's not been radically changed yet in their nature, that person can try to obey God and realizing that they don't have the power to do it. On the other end, though, someone who has been radically saved can also testify that they have victory over this outward sin, but they're also aware of some indwelling sin or inward corruption. And oftentimes people don't know about it outwardly, but the person themselves, they know. So they are aware that they have victory over outward sin, but they're also aware of this inward corruption. So how do we realize this need? I would turn you right to the book of Romans. Romans 5 said, you cannot be justified by the law. Romans chapter 6 says, after justification, the Christian life is not a life of continual sinning. And then we move to Romans chapter 7, and I believe Romans chapter 7 helps anyone to realize what indwelling sin is and its power. Romans chapter 7, essentially the message is, the law cannot make you holy in your heart. If you look in the original Greek, eight times there is where we translate in the English version sin, they fail to translate the word the before sin. That happens eight times in the Romans chapter 7, the sin. Three times there is a phrase denoting indwelling sin, 
And then 11 times, it is specifically talked about as indwelling sin. I think it's safe to say that this chapter is talking about this corrupted heart, this indwelling sin, and the relation of that corruption in the heart and the law of God. Romans 7 is not the testimony of a present experience. It's not the highest Christian life that we can have. Some people teach that. That's foolishness. If you read through that and you get to the end of the chapter, you realize this is not a person making excuse for sin. So what's the purpose of this chapter? To show that the law is powerless to sanctify. The law cannot make us holy. So Paul, in Romans chapter 7, uses his unsaved state to illustrate the power and the presence of indwelling sin. This is when Paul realized that there was such a thing as indwelling sin, this inner duality. It was like he had the admiration and intellectual desire to do good, but he also realized that he had no power. And he was confused about that. And then he came to the conclusion that there's this presence of the sin that dwells in me. And it's, it's described in such words like an indwelling tyrant that foils all of the efforts to do good. And apart from the sanctifying power of God, there is no effort of ourselves nor strength of the law that can slay this indwelling tyrant. So then you might say, well, who can slay it? Romans 7, 24 and 25, we hear this cry coming from the heart. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? The same question happened with Paul. He saw what was going on. He said, how? How do I get out of this? And his answer was, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he's realizing there needs to be a spiritual power that he doesn't have at this moment. In case you've just tuned in, you are listening to God's Resistance, where we resist sin, self, the world, and the devil. You can hear us every Sunday at 9 a.m. on WITK, 1550 a.m. and 94.7 FM. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. That is G-O-D-S-R-E-S-I-S-T-A-N-C-E. You can also email us at gods.resistance at gmail.com or call us at 570-362-7782. So then what do we do once we find out that there's this need, this duality in my heart? I want to do good, and then there's something in me that, that makes it hard to do that. And where, what is all this? What is this, this corruption within that's the, at the base of my person? Well, when we see that it's there, don't ignore it. Don't write it off. Face it square. Confess the need. Confess that carnal anger. And that carnal anger, anger in itself is not wrong, but it's the anger that's, when it's slighted, it wants to do harm to somebody else. It's impatient with other people and gets angry at them for, for causes that are really not righteous and for, that are really not just. That anger that just boils over in wrath. It's like you try to cork it and put it down and yet it just boils and bubbles off and then you lose your top. That's wrong. That's a, that comes from that corrupted heart. We see Jesus being angry, but we never see him being angry in this carnal kind of a manner. There's also a carnal jealousy. Why did they let this person, you know, uh, go and have this position in the church? Or why didn't my boss pick me? I'm way better than this guy. Or then we start backbiting and talking about these people behind the back, cutting them down. No, we don't, we don't come at him with a knife or a gun and try and kill him, but we're killing him with our heart. We're killing him with our thoughts. 
Sometimes we're killing with our words. Also, there's that carnal unbelief in the heart that basically sees who God is, sees what the Bible says, but won't believe what the Bible says about it. And we kind of shrink back. We don't, we don't really trust this God. That's a carnal thing, a carnal pride where we think of ourselves much better than we really are. And we in, in turn start you know, mowing other people down. Even if we don't do it with our own words, we know it's there inside of the heart. There's a carnal stubbornness that refuses to do what's right because you don't, you know, you can't tell me what to do kind of an attitude comes out. There's that carnal bent inside the heart that says, I will not come under authority. I will not submit myself. There's also that kind of divisive spirit. You know, most of the troubles that we have in the church world are because of carnality that is not dealt with. That corrupted heart is not dealt with. Most of the troubles that we have in society is because of this carnal self, this problem inside of our heart that modern psychology cannot fix, but Jesus Christ can fix. The thing is, is that we have to come willingly. He's not going to step over our will and just make us better. We have to want to be better. We've got to meet his conditions and we've got to seek his face. Well, how do I do that? How am I supposed to do that? Well, you've got to meet the conditions. First, well, there's two conditions, I should say. We have consecration and we have faith. Now, consecration sounds like a big word. If we turn to Romans chapter 12, it helps us understand a little bit more about what this is. Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So what is being told us here? First of all, he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. The Greek tense, uh, verb tense here, is it means to do something once, and the effects of it are continuous. So he's saying, Present yourself once and for all to God. There is a definite time where you do that. There is a definite time where I know and marked in my memory and in my heart that I have presented myself before God as a living sacrifice. And the reality of that presentation goes out for the remainder of my life. It's not just, you know, each day I present my body a living sacrifice because, you know, when I slept, I just suddenly desired not to do that anymore. I make this kind of crisis decision to sign my life over to him, and then I live it out, and I don't take myself off the altar of God. Now, in the Old Testament, when they offered sacrifice on the altar, they put animals down, animal sacrifices, and they died. Notice the difference here. He doesn't want a dead sacrifice. He wants a living sac sacrifice, which communicates to us this continual dynamic reality. We're sanctified in meat for the master's use. That's what the scriptures talk about. In other words, we are holy and qualified for Jesus, for God to actually use us. Because I have laid down my right to myself as I've presented myself a living sacrifice to God. Now I don't live for myself anymore. I live holy for God. And this isn't just a bunch of words. It's something that you and I have to get so deeply settled in our hearts. It's something we've got to feel. It's something living. It's something real. 
So many people talk about that. Living for God, I've given everything to Jesus, and then the way we live doesn't communicate that message. God's not interested in us just saying a bunch of words. He wants us to live this. He wants us to be a reality. So he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. What does he say? Holy. He wants a quality sacrifice to be given to him. That doesn't mean we make ourselves holy, like we fix ourselves before we come to God, but he wants all of our intentions in doing this to be right in his sight. I'm not laying myself down on the, on the altar of sacrifice so that God can somehow mis, uh, mysteriously fill me with this mystical power so that then I can have this wonderful, great ministry and everybody can look at me and I'm wildly successful in the world's sight. You'll never get that holy heart with that kind of an attitude. He wants holy intentions when we present our bodies a living sacrifice. So he's speaking about the quality of this sacrifice. And he, if we'll let him, God will point into our hearts with much specifics to make sure that we are offering a quality sacrifice. If we're not, the Spirit of God will help us to see that. And we need to have our hearts open to that. And sometimes it's not the most comfortable thing. It's painful. Because we are, then see ourselves like God sees us. And oftentimes we're like, I, I'm not like that. I'm not that bad. I don't, I don't want to believe that. But we have to believe what God says. And why are we supposed to do this? Well, this place in Romans 12 helps us to realize this, to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, we cannot prove what is the good and acceptable, perfect will of God until we present our bodies as a living sacrifice and it is holy in God's sight. And then he can make us holy. Well, you see, that's the consecration. That's the laying everything down on the altar. But if that was where we stopped, you and I would be the most miserable people if we had got to that point and stopped. Now our faith needs to grab hold of God for him to do the things that I can't do. I'm meeting his conditions. And faith Technically, it's part of laying ourselves on the altar of God unreservedly, but just for our mental understanding, we need to then also believe God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it says, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. It's God's will to sanctify us wholly, to make us holy and pure and blameless here on earth and to preserve us in that state until he comes. And then the promise is he's faithful. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Our faith needs to grab a hold of that. First John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do I believe that? First, have I met the conditions? If I have, do I believe in this almighty God who gave us that same spirit that raised up Christ from the dead to do such a miraculous inner work in me where he cleans out that indwelling sin? Will he do that? Do I believe him? And that's where we have to search uh, we have to search our own hearts before God, or rather we've got to let God search our hearts so that we present that acceptable sacrifice and he'll give you the witness of his spirit so you'll know that you have given him everything. And then you're on grounds to believe him.
you know, we've been talking about resisting self and its corrupt part, but also we have to realize that there is that resisting self, even that legitimate self. There's some things that are perfectly okay that you and I may have to say no to in order to join God's resistance and to push forth his kingdom and extend the borders of his kingdom. Sometimes we have to deny our legitimate self. There are good things that we have to resist in ourselves to continue that walk. God's will must always be in the ascendancy. Remember, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And a person that's not willing to do that is not worthy to be my disciple. He wasn't talking just about sinful things. He was just talking about laying my life, my plans, my ambitions, laying that to the side and keeping Jesus Christ in full view. So, as I said in the beginning, modern psychology has their way of understanding and interpreting what's going on in the world. But the Bible shows an entirely different picture. Our problem as people is not an intellectual problem. It's a moral problem. Our problem is at the core of our being. We are morally sick. You may not like to hear that, but it is the truth. And if you are in a place where you want change and you're desperate to have change, you'll swallow the bitter medicine and move forward. The remedy is not social. It's not government programs. The remedy is death to self and faith in Christ. I talked about Romans 7, 24 and 25, or rather I read it just a little while ago. Let me bring this back up to you again. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We oftentimes have to get to a place of such utter despair of self and such utter despair of this problem inside of our hearts that we can cry out like this, where he said that body of death, if you were in uh, under Roman government and you had murdered somebody, one of their punishments was that they would take that murdered body and they would strap it to the murderer face to face and tie him there. And they, that person had to carry around this dead body on the front of them. And eventually that dead body would kill the murderer as capital punishment. That's a gruesome picture, but that's what he's trying to convey to us. This indwelling sin is death and cancer clinging to us. And if we're going to live the life that God wants us to live, we have got to get on the cross of Christ and be crucified with him. God gave his son for the world to save the world, but Christ gave himself to the church or for the church. And the church is his body. The church is made up of saved people, believers. He gave himself for the church to sanctify it or to make it holy. God gave his son to save the world. Christ gave himself to sanctify the church. So, do you want to fight against tyranny? Do you want to be part of the help towards society? Part of the remedy? then you need to resist yourself. You need to resist that tyranny that is in your own heart. If you allow God to remove the tyranny from your own heart, you will be a powerful force in his resistance against sin, self, the devil, and the world. If you resist self, you will be enlisted in God's resistance to take this world back for God and for good. So how about it? Will you join the resistance, God's resistance, or will you continue to ignore the problem and limp along through life 
in a mediocre manner when God would make you a prince. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of God's Resistance. I just want to ask you, where are you in your journey? Do you know God? If you don't, you can know him. Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ to save you. But maybe you find that there's that fountain of sin in me that troubles me and pains me in my heart. You can have that taken care of as well. You can lay down all of your rights and claims to yourself as a living sacrifice before God. You can confess out those carnal traits, and he can sanctify you wholly, filling you with his spirit. Please tune in next Sunday at 9 a.m. as we will discuss what it means to resist the devil. If you'd like a copy of this broadcast or if you need someone to talk to or pray with, please contact us on Facebook and Twitter at God's Resistance. Make sure to like and follow us. You can also email us at gods.resistance at gmail or call us at 570-362-7782. The call is Join the Resistance. God's Resistance. A special thank you to Spectacular Sound Productions for giving permission to the use of the song Heroes and Monsters, which was edited and used in part on this production. The permission was granted under Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International Creative Commons license. That license may be found at https colon forward slash forward slash creativecommons.org forward slash licenses forward slash by hyphen essay forward slash 4.0 forward slash legal code.